The Revision Speaker Series is a Guildhouse initiative bringing together creative minds from around the globe to discuss contemporary arts practice. Revision has been curated as a COVID response, enhancing connectivity, sustainability and well-being across the arts community. This podcast is an audio recording from a live Zoom session recorded on Ghana Country. I'm very pleased to welcome you to the last event of our winter series of the Revision Speaker Series. This series of conversations is aimed at increasing connectivity during this ever-evolving time of disconnect and to offer an opportunity for artists to increase their well-being and to find new models of sustainability for their practice. So I'm pleased to introduce the panel session for Tools for Advocacy and our speakers. Tonight's chair, Esther Anatolidis, is the former executive director of NAVA and the current deputy director of Collingwood Yards and is one of Australia's leading advocates for arts, culture and the creative industry. Hi, Esther. Kelly McCluskey. I should say I'm the Deputy Chair of Contemporary Arts Precincts, not the Deputy Director of Collingwood Yards. Oh, my apologies. Thank you so much for That's right. um, correcting that. Thank you. Kelly McCluskey is the artist and co-founder of Tactical Media Art Group, PVI Collective, and a moderator for the artist-led Facebook portal, Australian Artists Amid COVID-19. Makita Yuong, mid-career South Australian artist whose work unpacks her own lived experience around race, gender, sexuality and mental health, is also here with us in the Guildhouse office this evening. And Sally Blackwood is an arts leader and opera architect, a passionate campaigner for individual and community connectivity through engagement in our arts and culture. So this is such a treat for us to hear from four incredibly dedicated artists and leaders and to gain insights into how they have fostered and nuanced their political voices and in turn to, I guess, give us inspiration as to how to harness our own voice. So thank you all for being here. And Esther, I express my thanks to you for hosting this evening and I pass on to you. Thanks, Debbie. Thank you. And and uh, how fantastic to be here. Hi, everyone. I am joining you from the land of the Bunwurrung and the Woiwurrung-Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I extend respects to their elders, to all First Nations people here, and particularly today being Mabo Day, a really important day in challenging and then destroying the false foundation of uh, claimed sovereignty uh, over this land um, with the end of the terra nullius doctrine. It's really, really great here in, uh, as I expressed earlier, Melbourne lockdown, excuse me, <laughs> uh, to get to see you all and to get to have this really important conversation. And I've got to say, I'm pretty bloody excited uh, to get to meet and chat with Makita, uh, with Kelly and with Sally about tools for advocacy. So what we're going to do I will kind of set the scene, I guess, with just a few ideas, a few concepts to get us thinking about the tools that we're going to unpack this evening. And then because of their work um, as artists and as advocates, I'm going to pose just one uh, broad question to each of these uh, extraordinary people so that we can get a sense of, I guess, those applied tools. How do artists and arts leaders work in different ways? as advocates what are the issues the challenges what are the second guessings and the ways in which we leap forward in in you know really important ways and we're going to leave as much time as we can um, for questions because it's just so important to have some good discussion as we really strengthen our voices 
And speaking of, something that I've been thinking about quite a fair bit lately is the relationship between art and tenacity and democracy, especially when we think about, you know, what's been in the news lately, the way that decisions are made on our behalf, uh, the way that the arts is still not prioritised at a time when it should be, the ways in which um, cultural practices should be leading national agendas. But beyond the advocacy question or before the advocacy question, the relationship between art, making art, experiencing art, um, the tenacity, the confidence, the courage that it that it gives us, the ways in which we understand and express and contest identity, um, the ways in which we feel and we understand different senses of agency and empowerment uh, has a phenomenal way of jolting us, sometimes in very subtle ways, but moving us to ask questions often in, in, in new ways, uh, asks new questions and, 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 and demands that, that we do the same. And similarly, advocacy, which sounds like a, you know, a complex set of political um, negotiations, but it is as simple as an ongoing set of conversations that centre your values your agency and your priorities as an artist, it takes those values, that agency, those priorities, and centres them in public, in industry engagement, in the media, in political processes, and on local and national agendas. And of course, you know, there's a kind of a a scaffolding kind of, you know, approach to simply a conversation or a government inquiry that you might contribute to or responding to a journalist or, you know, developing a campaign or an action. Uh, But of course, the more of us contributing to that civic realm in those small everyday ways, the greater the critical mass and the most, the more critical the cultural and political impact. So when we think about advocacy and we're going to talk through what are kind of, you know, examples or case studies, let's listen out for what were we trying to achieve, what tools were to hand, what language and what tone would be most effective or was most effective, who was engaged and and, and what would success look like. And in particular, when we think about tools for advocacy, using all the tools that we have ready to hand. And I'm hoping, I'm imagining that some of the insights this evening will be kind of realising that uh, the tools that uh, Makita or Sally or Kelly have deployed in different contexts were things, techniques, relationships, ideas, materials that were already ready to hand, that we're already almost ready to be greater, more effective advocates. And why? Uh, you know, let's let's have a look at that. Let's look at, you know, what was in that toolkit? What was drawn upon? Was it something that was already there? And we do this, of course, um, again, to centre those values and priorities, but also so that we are creating a future together, creating a presence together, where it is cultural practices that are leading political agendas, where we look across at what's going on right now and we think, yeah, I can I can relate to that that aligns with my ethics and my focus and my practices, that is the world or the Australia that I want to be living in right now. And I know that I am actively contributing to the ideas and the decisions that matter. So let's delve into that. 
by asking a few questions of this extraordinary group of artists. We're going to start with Makita. And the other day, with thanks to Debbie, we had, you know, a bit of a preparatory chat and thinking about, you know, getting to know our practices and, um, and I guess drawing out what it is that we do and why. And I wanted to start by asking Makita what it is about your orientation to your practice at the moment, which is making advocacy, I guess, you know, an, an important um, prospect and a challenge for you right now. I think one of the biggest challenges that I've had is probably just overcoming the actual doubts that I had, really. It's like I kind of felt like I had this blockage before I even began that I had to, like, get over. And often it was this strange because I've done a couple of works about a couple of different issues that are based on my personal lived experience. And there were some that were about mental health and there were some that were about my like mixed race heritage because my mother's family is Australian, my father's family is Vietnamese. And so I had these weird kind of blockages like that I felt like I wasn't authentic enough. It's like, oh, you shouldn't talk about race because you're not, you're only half Asian or you you shouldn't talk about men your mental health because your mental health isn't that bad compared to like the worst case scenario out there. And I kept having to tell myself and like boost myself and also talk to my friends about this and they would encourage me. And so I think- hey, Your friends. Yeah, like my artist friends or my arts community and they would just go like, don't even like, just, just do it. Um, and then I feel like once I actually went through the process of creating the work, that was like a catharsis and then the work was made, it, was, it existed. And then once I had it up in the gallery, then all this kind of conversation started happening of putting it up social media, putting it on Instagram, putting doing the first post with, you know, the text where people could read that was always a scary moment and actually doing a little caption and saying, that's what this is about. You know, I was diagnosed with this mental illness and this is what this work is about. It's my personal experience. And I guess there are these fears when you're talking about a controversial topic like race or mental health can be that you're, you're like, oh, I'm going to do it wrong. You know, like it feels like a bit of activism involved, but you're like, oh, maybe I'm doing the activism wrong by not by not in doing this or being inclusive enough or that kind of thing. And there's so like a fear there that was definitely something that I had to overcome. And I feel like working, like creating the work itself definitely really helped to boost that, but also getting feedback from people over social media and also like people who saw the works in the flesh and were keen to contact me and tell me what they thought. So that was definitely like a barrier that I had to overcome. And I think... Yeah, once that started happening, for instance, if you take this work as an example, I'm wearing one of the works I had in a solo show I had in Nexus Arts last year. This is about my mixed race heritage. So this is the front is the Australian flag colours and the back is the Vietnamese flag, the South Vietnamese flag colours. And it's got all these questions people ask me about my race and like my racial appearance. So like there's where are you from? I don't know if the text is coming up backwards. So this was sort of take, about taking my lived experience and then presenting it in a way that other people could actually engage with. So I found that really interesting and um, a lot of really positive feedback online and people who were really interested contacting me about opportunities and things like that because they saw the work. And so that was really, really fantastic feedback to have. And I think that has helped me to definitely like overcome those barriers Yes, because I had a lot of people who have a similar lived experience and they'd be like, oh, it's so incredibly relatable. I, it's like someone's taken part of my experience and put it, created something that was in the flesh, hanging in a gallery they could look at 
And if someone who hadn't had that lived experience at all and didn't know or think much about it because they'd never had to experience those barriers or that experience in their life, they were learning something new. You know, it was showing them something. But I think that's one of the powerful things about artwork. It's not like people were being kind of, people don't feel as attacked or directly called out. You know, it's something they can engage with. But like, yeah, better than kind of having, I feel, I personally, I get the feeling of that there's a lot of issues you can engage with, especially online. You can get kind of bogged down social justice things or um, things that are controversial and, you know, it can make you feel like you don't know which one that you should engage with. And whereas like with artwork, I guess you can engage with it or you can step back and absorb it or, you know, whatever you get out of it, you can get your own meaning out of it personally and you don't necessarily have to feel like you have to jump into action straight away. That was interesting barrier to go to get through for me. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah, of course. I mean, that's like, you know, your whole sense of personal identity, questioning that, questioning the sort of legitimacy of do I have the right to speak? And then it's not just, you know, questioning the right to speak about a particular issue, but it's one that touches on your very identity um, and then creating a work that, um, and, you know, now numerous works, but, but creating something that was going to place someone in a context where they could have that similar experience that you've just described, which is, I think, one of the most extraordinary and one of the most complex sets of tools that art, that, that, that the work of art offers us as a kind of a place for even considering our own voice. But let's go back to that feeling of, you know, kind of tentativeness and, 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 and self-doubt because, you know, that is something that um, is a real threshold moment you know for thinking about you know will I create this work will I speak in this way and when we look at some of the broader political and media discussion in Australia at the moment it's not like that feeling is an invalid one you know we see constant attacks by you know an insecure formerly dominant culture uh, just so afraid of losing that sense of privilege that it's, you know, there are really, there are very real, you know, fears and concerns about consequences for speaking out. So tell us more about how it felt to know that you could draw on friends and draw on others who were going to kind of buoy you, you know, into uh, drawing on that sense of your own voice. I think, yeah, part of the hesitation is, yeah, there is definitely that like feeling of, oh no, someone might call me out. And then for me, then it becomes this thing of like, I have to be prepared for every, you know, um, I have to make sure that I've considered this and I've considered this and I'm not, you know, like if someone comes up to me and asks me a question, which I've had that before happen. And I think that was actually a good experience. I had someone come up and ask me about a work that I'd made for a show at Urban Cow Studio. And it was about my mixed race heritage. And someone came up and said, like, how come you've got all these different symbols from different Asian cultures in one work? Like, you've got the South Vietnamese flag in there, but you also put the Japanese cherry blossom and the geisha. Like, what's that all about? And I sort of went, just explained and said, oh, it's actually about pseudo-Asian stereotypes placed upon Asian women and it's about... And I just pretty much just said what I'd been... The thinking process that I'd gone through making the work and then they were very like, oh, right, now I see. You know, so there was definitely that fear. But mm -hmm. if you've sort of gone through, especially being an artist, I feel like we we're talking about this a little while earlier, is that like my practice is so 
it can be so solitary. It could be so like you go into your workspace and you sort of have all of those ideas in your mind, like the artist brain going, and then you have to actually create the work and I create the work myself and it's, I don't often work with others. So then getting that like feedback is really important as well. But if you've gone through that artist thinking process, you've already kind of thought about all of the doubts you have about the work. Like you sort of thought, you know, you're the one who spent the most time with the thing that you've created. And so you're questioning, you're like, oh, but I am, am I reinforcing stereotypes instead of challenging? <laughs> oh, you know, and so like that, they say you're your own worst critic, which in a way is right and in a way isn't. But yeah, it's, you know, that all that kind of doubt and their the worry. And there is definitely like a fear of putting that part of yourself out there, especially if it's like your lived experience. You know, it is part of my identity and it is part of, you know, something that I have to like contemplate myself. And I think it was quite interesting because like, for instance, with the jumper, I've got the question, am I Australian here? And the rest are like questions from other people or comments from other people or um, how I respond to the questions. But people misinterpreted this question here as are you Australian? Like people thought that meant that people asked me, are you Australian? And that doesn't happen as often as the, where are you from thing? Yeah, right. Um, and I was like, no, actually, to be honest, like, see, in my artist brain, I just put it in because I was like, that's me questioning my own identity, mm. you know? Mm. And people, I thought that was interesting that people read that in the other way, like in some of the like press write-ups, like for things they wrote that in. And I was like, that's actually not what's written on the jumper. And they're like, oh, we have to change it. And, you know, but, you know, you can put your own message in there and your own meaning into like different bits of the work. But then there's always going to be someone who interprets it differently. And that's like part of the beauty of when people view artworks and engage with them because everyone's got their own point of view that comes out when they view a work, which is part of the, the, great, the great thing about being an artist, I think. Oh, God, yeah. And knowing that you have, you know, you have set off a range of, you know, potential responses that you couldn't possibly imagine. And I think that is, yeah, that's the, that's a gift and a challenge. And, and one of the, I think it's, it, it's fundamental to any consideration of putting something in, in the public realm. And kind of leads me on to asking um, Kelly some questions. Thank you, Makita. And I hope everyone's starting to think of your questions for Makita because there's so much to ask in what she just described. Now, Kelly, we just talked about self-doubt and a bit of, um, you know, that need uh, for a, a self-care approach, but also about the complexity of what is put out into the public realm. This, of course, is the very definition of the scope of practice of PVI. Can you tell us a bit about what PVI is up to lately? And I guess, you know, for you, what that, um, what that choice was to devote your practice to a set of engagements that are not just inspiring people to ask questions in different ways, but to get extremely politically active and civic minded. Well, wow, okay. Bam, bam, two questions in one. Oh, yeah. Um, all right. So actually, just stepping back a bit, because um, um, you mentioned earlier about what are our tools for advocacy. And um, just um, Debbie, with um, the intro, she mentioned um, tactical media uh, group, which is how we describe ourselves. But I did want to say that, that uh, the term tactical media came from Critical Art Ensemble, who talk about by any media necessary, like those are the tools. Uh, available any media necessary by whatever you can get your hands on and I kind of feel like we yeah I am uh, we lean into that 
But yes, what have we been up to lately? Um, we've been making um, a participatory, well, I would think it's more of a collaborative work with audiences called Tiny Revolutions. Mm. Um, and it's looking at, um, it's, a, it's an exercise in, um, in shared power um, whereby we all assemble all together, just picture a kind of Russian revolution meets kind of like the UN. So lots of big round tables and speakers and mics, but heavy flags and hanging down. And it's all about, there are apparently 15 global challenges that we face, uh, that humanity faces at the moment, according to a group of futurists um, called the Millennium Project, who were brought in by the UN in um, the late 70s to look at what is the future of humanity. Anyway, so they've come up with these 15 global issues and it's as you would expect, it's things like climate crisis, it's status of women, it's democracy, it's health, uh, it's wealth inequality, all of these things. And I think we were thinking at the time when we were making the work that we were so overwhelmed with the sheer scale of everything that we, have to try to fight for towards that how do we take these massive issues and make them more bite-sized um mm. and so that so that we can digest it um not just ourselves but with our audiences and so that, i guess that was the idea for tiny revolutions is that we invite members of the public to submit in a nutshell what keeps them awake at night um, and then they select one of the 15 global challenges that relate to that we receive that submission, it comes through online. Um, they also select a creative tactic for us to deploy. Um, so um, wearables is one, Makita. So, <laughs> which is, yeah, um, so yeah, a tactics like a hoax or um, a subvertisement or things like that, creative tactics that we can play with. And that submission comes through to our think tank where audiences gather around all of these tables that I spoke about. And we start the timer and we give ourselves 60 minutes to take what we know about the issue, to devise an idea in relation to um, what's been submitted. And we then have a, a ballot at the end as to which table's idea is gonna be taken forward to the do week where we actually do that action in the public realm on behalf of that person who submitted their issue. So it kind of comes full circle. So that's kind of what we've been working on. And it's um, it's been an amount, I've only just finished it last week. So it's still very fresh in my mind as a kind of, experiment in participatory democracy slash meets performance slash plays with Russian revolution thematics. But um, <laughs> so it's been very exciting. We work with local artists on the ground. We um, reach out into their networks and their communities um, to go and um, help us to achieve the dues. Um, and those dues end up being documented and they come back onto the Tiny Revolutions website, which is what we're working on at the moment. So it's really great. We have lots of toasts of vodka in the think sessions. It's very lively. It gets very rowdy once people kind of start to calm down and realize that everyone has a voice. This is a shared space. It's a space where, um, you know, we can give ourselves permission to be inarticulate and not expert in climate crisis or ethics or democracy. But we know how we feel about it and we can talk about our experiences of it. So I guess once those barriers come down, the conversations begin. And then this amazing creative little nugget comes out at the end of the 60 minutes from that time pressure of kind of the action we have to go and do. Yeah, so that's pretty much that work. <laughs> oh, just and the other question, 
that instantly makes me think of you know what you just described and the way that everyone you know participates plays you know throws themselves into that there would have been so many of those little moments and overcoming of little moments of um self-doubt or tentativeness or you know looking for that voice so just as um makita was describing as as you know earlier on in her practice you would see that again and again as people have that little aha moment of going ah okay this is this yeah. is a step that i can take what what is that like it's it's kind of magic i mean the way that we, we use gameplay a lot in our practice and what that does is it actually actually levels the playing field between you know an, an audience and a, and a performer to some degree um mm -hmm. because what it, it it kind of you know everybody can uh, most people can understand and find the idea of a game accessible and it immediately locates your brain in an area of kind of play and experimentation and it's like okay we're going to play a game you know there's safety in that so i think over the years for us it's been looking at ways in which we can kind of work with the idea of gameplay but slam it into, you know, really difficult subject matter and difficult issues. And so that our audience members are kind of navigating their way through perhaps difficult content, but in a really fun way. So, um, and and yes, over the years, I think with live audiences, you, you constantly, whenever you say the word participation, people panic and immediately <laughs> think of this worst case scenario, like the spotlight's going to go on them and it's, you know, something horrible's going to happen. And so it's kind of taking some of that away, you know, trying to strip that out and go that it doesn't have to be like that. We're all in this together. Let's have some fun with it. And yeah. Oh, precisely. Because that's the thing, you know, if that kind of civic engagement or advocacy were only up to one person, uh, it would be absolutely terrifying for that one person. Uh, <laughs> but to see through the, the platform of, of, of a game, not only that a complex system can be mastered, but that also there can actually be some fun and delight and joy and satisfied curiosity and so on in it, I think is, yeah, the really, really important insight. Um, which leads me on to a question uh, for Sally. And again, everyone, please, I'm sure you've got lots of questions for Kelly. So either add them to the chat or, you know, we will talk more in a little bit. Um, Sally, that sense of, um, I guess, navigating through a complex system, a game, that sense of the individual versus the broader kind of system or institution. So your recent advocacy has been really kind of in that zooming out sense, looking at the role of the institution, the industry or political power that it can wield, um, and the impact that individuals can have in kind of shifting uh, that uh, sense of, of power and shifting uh, agendas for advocacy. Tell us about one of your recent adventures in that space as an opera architect. Thank you so much. Uh, and thank you so much to Makita and Kelly. Um, I'm calling in from Gimilaro country and I'm in a regional area. And I, I just want to say that because I think it's really important that we all have voices across Australia, across the world, and we don't have to be in a city to make a stand and to find advocacy and to find our networks that are now connected via Zoom, connected via, you know, digital medium. It's very easy and it's a wonderful thing that we can all kind of stand together in that way. Yeah, it's it's really incredibly important. And I just wanted to pick up, if I may, with something Makita mentioned and, and was carried on, this idea of fear before you step in. I was terrified. You know, don't, you know, I can't 
express more how extraordinarily terrified I was to make a stand against, uh, and I'm talking about opera, so it, within an area that I work in, and to make a stand against against people or against um, systemic change that needed to happen, absolutely terrifying. So the fear doesn't stop you. It shouldn't stop you when you realise that actually I couldn't not act and that was really really important and it's not about me it went from it went from an event that happened and this is in 2019 uh, and the event then escalated into something that hang on this is something that is beyond us in this little event it's beyond me and it's certainly a public conversation which then becomes part of what you're talking about Esther in terms of democracy mm. it becomes part of something that's much much bigger than us and therefore how can my voice and I I really love when you know um, Makita when you're talking about your lived experience and being able to legitimize that and for me it wasn't just legitimizing my lived experience but the lived experience of young composers female composers who were who I was surrounded by who at that time were told their voices were not welcome in the operatic field and it was incredibly important for me to then take that and step up but I didn't do it by myself and I think that's really important I did lead it but I had a really core team of people around me and I think in terms of tools of advocacy people just people the people that you trust this core group of people who are absolutely intrinsic in making change is so so important trust absolutely trusting and then looking at how best to platform voices at that particular moment there was no point in sally blackwood stamping her feet and, and yelling that didn't that wasn't going to cut across that was not a strategic move in any way but what was was to talk with a group of people to be on the phone to be to be texting people to be working out what other people want what's going on and when this was really palpable that change needed to happen in terms of gender equity and diversity in opera that's been building for a very long time and I'm not we are standing on the shoulders of women that have come before us that have forged so much already and we just happen to be here at the right time to suddenly flick us a bit of a switch but to come and then work out our core team and to also then be able to uh, strategically work out that the first step on our plan was not our voices but it was a voice of media to speak out first and I think that's incredibly important someone someone we trusted and um, and Alison Crogan wrote an incredible article which then from the back of that we could write a call to action from the back of that other articles came out longer more in-depth articles that was really important so on the back of her being able to to write and platform then we were able to um, garner you know 200 plus voices in 24 hours from our call to action through arts hub which was which was then calling for seven different demands if you like for systemic change i won't go through all of them but i will say the last one was we call for those in leadership to back us and the act of hearing to be prioritized alongside that of speaking and I think that was really core. We were looking at shifting the way in which opera artists are treated, the way they're seen, the way stories that are told on the operatic stage in terms of violence against women um, is per being perpetuated. There's a, It's many layered um, and it was incredibly important. But that listening was something that really started to trigger what was going on and 
from there, we were able to have much bigger conversations. So this happened other... It's then that bigger networks, people sharing these, sharing overseas that was shared thousands of times. I didn't have to do all of that. My cohort of four women altogether didn't have to do all of that. It was trusting that our voice, and I love Esther when you're talking about centering the voice, and that's incredibly important, was being taken out there to the point where we then could sit down with the Australia Council and, and get the Australia Council then to lead, to do the heavy lifting for the next stages. So the Australia Council, the Australian Centre for Music, APRA AMCOS, then organised an opera summit at the end of 2019. So that was a, from April to December. What was done was extraordinary. Uh, and we were about to leap off in the 220, but we all know what 220 did. So, And that's also important, when to speak and when to wait because it was not the time in 2020 when everyone was losing their jobs to suddenly keep talking about women in opera. That's not the time and so we're, we're waiting till the right time. What you just outlined, thanks so much, Sally, for taking us through all that detail, was um, what you just outlined is a really sophisticated approach to a campaign, although I imagine it didn't always feel like it at the time because you didn't kind of stop back and think, yes, I'm going to plan a, you know, a multi-month kind of, you know, here's, and step one will be this and step two will be that. But I think it's a, it's a brilliant example of using a range of tools that are ready to hand, but also, and it kind of zooms out on the experience that Makita described about an artist feeling a sense that, you know, a, you know, just standing at that interstice of, you know, about to uh, express yourself and your identity in a different way and engage people in that conversation. And then zooming out to what Kelly described, uh, a platform, a, a game, uh, a set of challenges that kind of, you know, uh, embody for people that the sense of taking that next leap and enjoying it. What you just described, as, as we saw in one of the little slides I threw up earlier, is using, I guess, a range of different tools for different purposes. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, when Sally described going to the media, we go to the media for a number of reasons, don't we? we, we we've kind of, there's a, there's a conversation that's happening within the industry. But when we go to the media, we want to reach a different audience. And we also want to jolt institutions into action. So tell me, uh, tell us all what, what that meant for you to be explicitly pursuing a, a, a public approach through the media, knowing the impact that that would have on an institution, particularly on its board. Absolutely. I think it was really important. I, I do think it's important to choose who you speak to, who you entrust your voice to. That's absolutely integral. Yes, I there's media and then there's, yeah, who you trust absolutely. your voice to is vital. And look, I've learned so much through this. Women that I was working with, um, Lisa Lim, Peggy Polias, Brie Van Rijk, four of us worked together. And Lisa was really a core person for me to, to bounce these ideas off and really taught me so much about, one, sticking to our issues, not engaging in every public conversation that involved equity and diversity because or bigger conversations about violence against women where that was absolutely important but at that moment was not the, the, the issue so that we didn't get drawn into these big, unwieldy conversations, which is really easy to do and media can put you off very, very quickly. So we trusted our voice to Alison Crogan in the beginning and then later on we were asked to do other articles and write other things and it was very much about making sure our voice was first and foremost. So Joe Litson was fantastic at Limelight, really great 
people who were um, behind us. And I think that was um, incredibly important. Uh, there were some articles I refused to do because of the background of the particular media person. There were some, because I knew that the story would be twisted. And look, it was interesting in a couple of instances where we didn't participate, the story was twisted. So it's it's finding that ground, I think. But there came a moment where we realised that this was a public issue and it was an issue about women in general and women and violence and women who whose voices weren't being heard, who yeah. were you know, not wanting to participate in any level of their art form because they weren't being heard, because they were being squashed and stifled. That's a really big issue. That's way beyond the the people that came to this particular Catalyst conference. I think what was also really important was not blaming and not talking about the incident that happened, but rather what are our tools for going forward. And yeah. that was really, really crucial because otherwise you get stuck in playing a blame game, which doesn't actually help anybody. It doesn't progress. It doesn't help the art form. And that was really key to making sure that we didn't, when the media asked about that, or that we kept moving it forward. It's a really crucial observation because, of course, you know, it's important when you're onto, like, you know, a, a substantial advocacy campaign approach, it's very important to use the media so that uh, we're not just speaking to ourselves, we're enlisting others, and we're also making it clear to the people that we're more directly advocating to that we we recognise and we assert this as being in the public interest and of, and, and, and of public importance. But as soon as something goes out into the media, we do lose control of the narrative. And so having to choose the tone, the voice is very important. I mean, you mentioned earlier, Sally, uh, thinking about the appropriate times that, you know, um, the height of uh, the pandemic and its health impacts and its uh, impacts on people's jobs wasn't then the, the time to continue that approach. And, you know, Things in the mind of last year looking at facilitating national advocacy approaches for the entire industry on COVID, that I was really mindful at the very, very outset that we needed a frame that was actually very strongly generically public, which is how I came up with Create Australia's Future as a sort of a, a theme and a hashtag and a, a, an advocacy approach for a whole lot of the media and, and, and supporting artists to speak out so that we were really talking about something that was something that people could relate to without coming across as, you know, why are whingy artists speaking up? And I'm just seeing in the chat uh, that Cynthia Schwertzik, um has noted that it's um, this still prevalent feature of women to be questioning their voice, our voice, if it is relevant. Cynthia says she so much relates to that and it keeps coming up and works as a big blockage. And we're certainly seeing, aren't we? Uh, and now question for Kelly and for Makita as well. And please, everyone, do uh, throw your questions into the chat or as, as Debbie has said, let us know. Uh, just type in, I would like to ask a question if you'd like to ask one because um, we're heading into our last minutes. So, yes, that sense that um, as, you know, new and next waves of feminism hit us, there is just you know, more and more kind of virulent, violent, misogynist approaches out there that, that we need to um, that we need to counter. Makita, how much of this is still an ever-pressing daily thing for you, that, that kind of self-doubt of your voice uh, and or as a woman? 
I think it really uh, intersects, the whole self-doubt thing really intersects with like the barriers that I have, for instance, having um, like living with a mental illness that I have to manage. Um, and like, you know, I treat that and I manage that and I, you know, um, like, you know, it's a medical thing. And making artwork about that was like really cathartic, but it's just things like, for instance, taking self-doubt and then, you know, if you add that, into the mix where if you're not having a great mental health day that can be extremely difficult to get through you know like I think sure that anyone who's had struggle with like anxiety or depression can probably relate you know to the negative feelings that can happen there so like you know and and also like there is the you know questioning yourself I think because people yeah when people have questioned you all your life about who and what you are that can really kind of you know come through in ways that you just completely don't expect yeah like um you know for instance like a lot of these questions if I'm remembering this stuff from childhood from high school this is from memory like this is things that have stuck in my mind and like I think when I was creating the work and when I was first showing it I was quite I really didn't want to come off as being like angry or you know like had being this really heavy thing I was just like well this is just what people say to me and honestly I think some of it's funny and I think some of it's weird and I think some of it's some um, everyone's gonna have a different reaction to it like from your oh it's so relatable from like a lot of other people of color and stuff immigrants second or third generation immigrants and you know from oh my god people say that stuff to you you know, that's awful. Or people going, is that offensive to ask you where you're from? So like all of it, like I got a few different reactions, which was really like good to talk about with people because I really want like to engage with all of that. And, you know, as well, also like with that kind of advocacy, especially when it's coming from like the lived experience as like Sally was talking about, you know, it then becomes about you thinking about your lived experience like in this way that you're dredging stuff up and um yeah like for instance there's a lot of emotions happening to me like when I made this work about my actual father's life as an immigrant from Vietnam he as a child he like you know he witnessed like the Vietnam War was happening when he was a child and then he experienced post-war Vietnam and then he came here you know and it's like I've been really, really interested in seeing any other artists who are keen to like talk about their immigrant experience and who have a different angle on it, a completely different angle on it to me. It's a different context because like the country is different or their background's different. But at the same time, there's these parallels that I get when I read about them and their work and when I read interviews and I feel like I can connect to all of it. But also there is, of course, a difference. But, you know, that kind of helps you to get rid of your self-doubt if you're just kind of alone in your own thinking doing a lot of research can also help you to feel less self-doubt and you also learn that other people have had those doubts and they've just they've gotten past it or they've shoved it aside and gone no I'm gonna do this and yeah I guess when you're talking about the question was about like oh women doubting themselves it's like it seems to be like there's a lot of stuff about stuff like imposter syndrome and things like that and like women in the workplace like how if you're in working in an office with like women and men how you can overcome your own like doubts about how capable you are and when it comes to women they'll just keep doing the job they'll just keep doing the job and being so so capable and you know like as also advocating for other women and then the doubts are still there in their minds but they just keep doing it 
Yeah, and there's just, you know, there is so much there that's structural or deliberate that is um, that exacerbates those doubts, which is why it's so important, as you were saying, to draw on one another, to do that research. Uh, Cynthia's saying she also gets asked where uh, she comes from because her accent is weird, but her otherness is not visual, but still present. Oh, yeah, the accents, yeah. Yeah. Like people do get asked. I think I certainly suffered a lot more racism when I was younger, but um, yeah, my family also come from a traumatised war-torn background and it's, it is something that stays alongside you and, and doesn't leave. And certainly for me, it's a, it's a motivation towards, you know, greater civic and, and, and political engagement. We have got a few questions coming in now. So we're just going to work through these. It is five minutes before we're due to wind up. We might go for an incy-wincy bit longer because there's clearly lots here to talk about. Now, Debbie's saying outside of um, your individual arts practices, um, do you use your own personal platforms for wider social issues or advocacy? And how do you conduct yourself in that space? Kelly, let's ask you that question. And um, and I guess for everyone, we know we, we won't get to ask everyone all the questions, but we will be here for all evening. So we're gonna do a bit of kind of cycling through. Um, but Kelly mentioned earlier, um, uh, the um, the big Facebook group of artists, but then also using social media in different ways. So how do you juggle, I guess, the personal, you know, uh, social media began as a place to be social and it can be such a horrifically, um, you know, kind of unsafe space as well, but it's also a great opportunity. Yeah, yeah, sure. I, it's a great question. I mean, I think for us, for PVI Collective, we, you know, we are a collective of artists. So I think that there's an identity that's a, a hopefully attached to that art group as its own thing. And I'm yeah. a member of that art group, um, but I am also an individual <laughs> who has a degree of autonomy. So even though I may agree with, you know, pretty much everything PVI is doing, I do have own points of view on other things. And I think that we all, um, I, I think there have been situations and just going back to Sally's amazing points um when when you know advocacy that you're doing or artworks that you're making hit hit you know controversy uh or or kind of go in a way that's unexpected that then then you know you can find yourself um on the back foot and and having that finger pointed right at you and i think that you know when when um people do associate you with you know another organization that you you become the face of that organization even though there's lots of other people <laughs> like you were saying Sally there's lots of other people it wasn't just you so I don't quite know what the answer is other than to kind of distinguish the difference for you to be able to distinguish the difference between your voice and the voice of, of the voice of your artwork even or the voice of the, of, of the company or the organization that you're working with within I think that's a, that's a good response. And also, I guess, it, and those, for those who don't have that organisation or institution, I think it's, um, yeah, just really uh, taking the time to consider your personal choice. You know, do you want to engage uh, with social media? And then, you know, how, how do you want to make it? work for you because it's not um yeah i think it's um again it's it, it it's a possibility but not an inevitability um and yeah it can be it can be challenging but it can also be a yeah a great opportunity now our next question comes from emma Fay. thank you so much esther and i just say i'm loving this conversation so much it's a, a topic very close to my heart um one of the challenges i observe um, in conversations with artists and with colleagues 
um, especially those that haven't necessarily took to the stage or took to a podium or a platform in, in many ways, is, is actually how they articulate what they want to happen in very specific uh, terms or, or how they want it to, to take place. There's a, especially when sort of the weight of the world can feel very large and so it can be a very heavy role to try and discern the what and the how. I just wondered if, you know, maybe one or two of the panellists could speak about some of the specific ways we talk about tools, some of the tools you use to define that and distill it. And I, of course, credit to PVI for that amazing way you do that collaboratively. And I was um, Rebel Emma at the uh, Tiny Revolutions the other day, and I really appreciated that. <laughs> um, so I just thought I won't take up too much time asking my question. I would love to hear some some um, comments on that. Sally, let's let's go to you. That sense of how do you kind of yeah decide the what and the how. That's yeah fantastic. I mean, we were very clear about it's about structural and systemic change. So it's about big reform, which isn't going to happen overnight, but that we're chipping away at it. And I think what Esther alluded to at the very beginning, that this is a conversation and it's an ongoing conversation, is um, is really important in terms of having that wide-reaching conversation and it um, us not having to have the answers today. Um, but that's not letting go of it entirely. That's sort of that's not a cop out at the same time. You know, I think I think it's a conversation that that also stre stretches into the past. That we're gathering everything that we've got from the past and building on it. I know for me, it's about being clear as we did in our call to action was writing down seven points. So if you want to have a look at that opera and the doing of women, it's got seven specific points and that's that was we discussed that amongst ourselves and that was something that was really clear that we wanted to to achieve um so we've got something therefore to go back back to mm. um the how i love that pvi does it in a really playful way and that you, it's a very inclusive kind of creative space and i think that's a really gentle beautiful approach um this is our approach was a little bit different in terms of this was much more uh, talking about um, profiling what was going on, how things needed to change in the media and then getting hold of that. How? It's about people sharing it. It's about people participating in the conversation. It was really important that the call to action had people as co-signatories and the fact that we got over 200 people in a couple of days was amazing. Well, in the first 24 hours, actually, we got most of them, so which was incredible. Um, it also was very much about then when institutions wanted to co-sign, was like, well, what are you co-signing to? And they had to be really strategic conversations about, okay, that's great, you want to do that. What are you actually committing to? So we had another tier that said, if you're an institution and you're signing this, you're signing because you are saying that you are going to come up with a letter that's going to come out in the next you know, six months or so you know, describing exactly what you're going to do. What are the steps that you're going to take to meet these seven demands? So being really clear about that. As I said, it's about whose voice is uh, is being taken like, by the media. So so being really clear that that's, that's um, the same across, you know, that we all are standing and saying the same thing in, in different ways. Um, but it's also about um, different people can take on those voices. I mean, I was asked to be on a panel in Brisbane um, and I looked at the panel and the panel was made up of all white women. And I thought, I don't need my voice to be here. This is not, I need to step back for other people to be part of, part of this. 
Um, and because of that, they had a much more diverse panel and a much better way of, of uh, articulating the changes that needed to happen. And I think that's really important, looking at my place and when my voice is useful and when it's not, which, which you know, in performatory terms, it's like when am I holding space and when can I actually step back and let other people hold that space in a much better way? And whose voice is in the room? You know, whose voice is in the room and who isn't in the room? And that's incredibly important. So picking up that gauntlet and running with it until such time as there is a critical mass, but also there are lots of other voices in the room that need to come out. And being able to take uh, such a comprehensive approach because of identifying all those different modes uh, is yeah, just such a strength. We have got one last question and then we're going to have to um, uh, wrap it up and work out how we're each going to look at our own toolkits and make our own commitments to continue to be great advocates. So the last question is from Michelle Lee. What is your recommendation um, to tackle political issues in your artwork that could have you detained in a different country? Can one create work but still remain anonymous and have the work on show? So question for, oh, I think, um, well, Makita and Kelly, whoever would like to leap into this one because it's kind of a, you know, we have, it's, it's, a, it's a funny country, Australia, uh, you know, we're kind of um, adventurous and, you know, larrikin and whatever, all that kind of, you know, Anzac myth nonsense is, and we're also quite conservative uh, and, um, and uh, we can support environments where artists can present work that in other countries would be quite dangerous, uh, but then we'll, you know, we've got politicians who'll jump on the most benign kinds of things. Now, Kelly just had her hand up. Yeah, thanks, Esther. Terrific question. I mean, I think um, in response um, to Michelle, uh, I think um, from our perspective, the more overtly political a work and artwork is, the less impactful it is. Because I... I, oh. I Interesting. So for us, it's about a degree of subterfuge and kind of, um, um, you know, working with gameplay, working with performance, working with participation and audiences, um, and actually not um, making it as obvious as perhaps it could be if it was a campaign, for example. Um, the other thing we wanted to raise in terms of kind of empowering yourself or, or protecting yourself is um, for this project, Tiny Revolutions, after we'd gotten all everybody's ideas and um, um, we're ready to go and do them on the streets. We had a lawyer. We had to lawyer up. We call it lawyering up. <laughs> we literally have a lawyer for the project who's an enabling um, uh, ex-board member of PBI, understands our work and basically looks at all the ideas, all the actions we want to do in public space and say, not, not, not say don't do that, it's illegal, um, but say here's how you get around this and these are the laws you need to know about. And so through understanding some of those legal parameters, we're able to kind of work our way in and out of it. Um, I don't think that fully answers, but that just jumped into my head to mention. 
Oh, yeah, because, you know, there's that uh, there's that old adage of, you know, you've got to master the rules to break them and being very aware of the legal limits and, and loopholes is extremely important. And Makita, what about for you? I mean, in that sense of artwork that really directly tackles either political or identity questions, do you often kind of, you know, look across the various aspects of your cultural identity and and, and family heritage and think about, you know, what if this work were presented in one of those countries or contexts? Well, there was the work where I stitched the hammer and sickle onto like this little flag thing and then put like a sales quote on it. I mean, that was... <laughs> like, I mean, like, I'm pretty sure that in actual Vietnam, like, where they, I'm sure there's not much pro-Marxist sentiment at all because, you know, they have, like, the communist regime after the Vietnam War, and my dad is not keen on communism at all, and that's that's kind of what that work is about. It's about how I know a lot of, like, young leftist people who are, like, kind of into Marxism, um, and I might kind of have ideals that are leaning that way, but then my dad would just really, like I said to him, Dad, what was it like living in, like, the communist regime? And he would just be like, oh, there was awful things. There was so much horrible stuff, and he would tell me some of the stuff, and it would be like, um, you know, but I think... Like, it's hard to know, because I think with that particular question, can one create work but still remain anonymous and have the work on show? And I'm trying to think of ways you could, like, do that, but I don't have, probably don't have enough knowledge in this area. So, like, consult with, like, wherever you want to work with. Like, if it's at a gallery, uh, maybe be like, can I be anonymous? Can you just, like, put the work up there and maybe totally anonymous and can protect my identity or something? Because I don't know exactly what the legal stuff is. Like, it's hard to know without the context, you know, like if it's a work that's uh, offensive in your home country. And because um, I have like Australian, I was born here, so I have Australian citizenship. So it's not like it's a way in which I am privileged. I can just, you know, don't have to worry about that. Um, but yeah, that, that's where that really, that divide kind of intersects where you, intersects where you, um, yeah, Australia being that conservative country. And it's like, you've got to, you've got to navigate that. And the fact that, yeah, there, there are like, terrible like consequences for certain things that is a real genuine fear and a lot of um more privileged Australians have absolutely no idea like they think it's all cool they think it's all good we're a multicultural country we're like accepting of everyone we give everyone a fair go but it's like this is people's lives like they you know like this is what happens to certain people who are from different places this is how like that can intersect when you've got come from one culture or one country with the possible trauma that you that comes from that and then you're trying to survive in this new country or you 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 know and you want to share your experience but there's like a real fear there yeah not just because because you have the memory like for instance I've been hearing a little bit about very heavy topic very heavy intergenerational trauma and then I've been thinking what if my dad's experiences in Vietnam you know, affecting me um, because I just kind of pushed that away for a lot of my life. And so, you know, because you think about, you think about your parents' lives and that's real stuff that impacts you because they raised you, this person going through an experience and they have that life experience and they raised you with that informing them. Yeah. You know? My sister and I talk about that a lot given the circumstance in which my parents were raised and then it eventually came here. Um, and I think it's very real. Um and it, um, it never ceases to shock me that, um, you know, Australian kids in schools are not taught 
you know, the modern histories and modern political histories of the uh, countries that, well, well first of all, um, of the first peoples of Australia, um, and secondly, the, the um, countries from which our, our parents and also many of us um, have come, because these are not only the stories of, you know, this nation, but they are the intergenerational traumas that um, um, affect or constrain us. And yeah, they do take massive negotiating um, and I guess there are also ways in which um, you know really drawing on our cultural heritage in different ways can mobilize um, and inspire us to engage politically you know for those of us who come from the you know those more politically unstable countries um, it's often more of an everyday conversation that sense of what what are you doing? Um, who do you vote for? What's your position on a particular issue? These are normal conversations in, you know, generally all of the non-English speaking world. Um, and, you know, are, are an important part of kind of everyday civic culture. And so it's up to all of us to think about how we transform the everyday civic culture of Australia, either in very small ways by uh, continuing to develop our practice, to talk about it, to present it in different ways, or to think about making uh, that personal choice um, of the kinds of issues that we want to engage with and how. And I guess really, um, you know, I talked briefly about the notion of um, creating Australia's future together. Um, I think it's also important for all of us um, to take that time to make that personal choice about how do I engage politically, to what extent, where and how am I comfortable, um, and when will I review this important decision um, and think about the next stage and the next, the people that we draw on and the ideas that, that we make sure are central to Australia's future. So before handing back over to Debbie, I just wanted to give enormous thanks um, to Makita and to Kelly and to Sally. There is a lot more um, chat that is happening uh, and I see we've got a lot of similar cultural backgrounds and, um, um, and, and issues to share and to draw upon and to be empowered by. Um, big thank you to Guildhouse for uh, entrusting me with this important conversation. Um, and um, yeah, let's let's change the nation. Back to you, Debbie. Thank you so much. Thank you all for joining us today. And the speakers, it's been so great to hear from you and to talk with you about such personal and powerful issues. So I really appreciate your vulnerability and for really um, sharing so much of yourself. It's been inspiring, but it's also been um, incredibly practical, which I think is a really fitting way to end this season. So thank you so much, Esther, Kelly, Nikita and Sally. Thank you for listening to the Revision podcast series recorded on Ghana Country. This series is brought to you by Guildhouse, our supporting partners and session speakers. Please head to our website guildhouse.org.au for more information on the series and our artistic collaborations with and professional development opportunities for Australian artists. Revision was developed with support from Australia Council for the Arts, the Day Family Foundation and Creative Partnerships Australia and has continued through the generous philanthropic support of the Guildhouse Creative Visionaries.